Welcome to the Power Pulse podcast series brought to you by Standard Bank. Well, it's the final episode in our series, which began way back on the 23rd of August, looking at Power Pulse and how it assists businesses and, um, well, retail consumers as well in getting into renewable energy. It's a fascinating platform put together by Standard Bank, whose senior manager for natural resources, power and sustainable solutions, Dirosh Maharaj, is with us. Dirosh, we've come a long way in this journey. It's been, uh, we've learned a heck of a lot in the last seven. And today we're going to be discussing the regulatory requirements and compliance factors involved in solar PV installations for businesses. And you've got a special guest that you've managed to uh, bring into this podcast. Yes, that's right. Uh, that's right, Alec. Uh, we've got uh, Paul Fredermulin, who's the chief engineer from city of Johannesburg with us today for renewable energy. And yeah, we're delighted to have him with us. Uh, Paul, we're going to ask you some specific questions a little later, but uh, in the breakdown of the metros, is Johannesburg, I know it's the biggest, is it the, does it have the biggest uh, city power or power uh, operation of all the metros in South Africa? Alec, it's one of the biggest. So uh, the last time we looked, uh, city power was roughly 8% of the national load. So it's definitely one of the bigger metros, um, but uh, def- definitely Etiquini and Cape Town are probably very similar in size. Um, also, Ekuruleni might, in, in fact, use a little bit more energy. They're a little bit more industrial than what we are. Indeed. Well, interesting stuff. And we do have, uh, Dirosh, as you were saying, Paul for Mullen. But maybe we can start off, Dirosh, by just walking us through the legislation that is in place that governs solar PVs for businesses. So, Alec, you know, as a bank, we've had to get close to this and from the way we understand it the overall governing piece of legislation is essentially the electricity regulation act however the regulatory process to be followed for power generation assets to be legally connected is far more complex as it draws focus you know frames of reference that need to be complied with so firstly you've got uh, the nursa framework which is you know made up of the NASA licensing requirements and that makes reference to you know the schedule 2 exemptions and um, you also have their rules and standards that need to be complied with um, in this particular space we've seen the government has shifted to supporting decentralized uh, power generation and you would have heard recently you know they've increased that threshold from 1 megawatt to 100 megawatts so any system below 100 megawatts doesn't need a NASA license any longer. However, there are, you know, the rules and standards that still need to be complied. Uh, secondly, you've got the grid codes that need uh, you, you need to comply with as well, and that's a whole other body of uh, reference that you need to you need to ensure compliance with. And finally, the collaboration um, and sign-off from the utility that you're linking to. And this could either be ESCOM, where the requirements uh, need to be fulfilled to conclude uh, the electricity supply agreement, or uh, the municipality, like City of Joburg or Ekurleni, where the relevant bylaws need to be complied with. And sometimes there's a connection agreement that needs to be concluded as well. So in broad strokes, that's essentially what the regulatory environment looks like. Now that 
that increase from uh, one megawatt to sorry um, one megawatt to a hundred megawatts has has thrown uh, a a big opportunity there. But what about the different types of installations that are permitted? Perhaps you could give us some pros and cons of those. Yeah, so look, um, you've got uh, your grid-tied systems, which are essentially uh, solar PV array and an inverter. And in those instances, those systems will provide uh, power when the sun's shining, but it doesn't give you a backup solution. So if there is load shedding, the way the grid code and, um, you know, what the grid code permits and what uh, how inverters are, configured, uh, the system shuts off as well, technically. Um, You've also got backup systems or hybrid systems, which have some component of battery storage. And in those systems, you're able to island the system adequately, safely. So you can still use your solar and batteries when there is load shedding. And then you have completely off-grid systems, which, uh, you know, have no link to the grid. And, you know, the, when, when you look at those three systems, uh, the pros and cons, obviously, off-grid system, you you completely self-reliant. However, there's no safety net. And the costs are quite astronomical when you're going off the grid because, you know, battery storage is still quite a costly um, undertaking. Um, a backup system is something that you sometimes, especially now with the, you know, the, the load shedding that we've seen or the challenges in supply, months, uh, it's becoming more and more uh, a viable solution to consider because, you know, you, you're basically saying, I want solar, but I also want four hours of backup. And while very costly, you sometimes, when you establish the downtime costs, are able to, to justify it from a cash flow perspective. And then the simplest system, you know, to, to, and the simplest from a, from a cash flow perspective to justify is a, is a standard grid system. However, you don't have that backup capability. So when there's load shedding, you are also load shed even if you have solar. Um, So another consideration is to be feeding back to the grid or whether you're not going to be feeding back into the grid. And, um, you know, that that, that is another component. ESCOM allows you to bank, but uh, you've got to follow the process and ensure you've got the agreement in place to feed back and actually register you know that uh, you're basically using the ESCOM grid as your as your storage capability, and a lot of municipalities allow for that as well. So those are various types of systems and configurations, and yeah, uh, those are the pros and cons on a high level. Uh, Paul, perhaps you could um, give us an insight or an overview of the regulatory and compliance factors that businesses should be aware of before they initiate a solar PV installation. Thanks, Alex. So I think the first one is that in terms of the, the, the National Distribution Grid Code, which is a mandatory piece of legislation, it, it specifies that an end user or a customer must inform the network service provider of their intention to connect any form of generating plant to the grid. And if, if I can sort of liken it to uh, you know, a road traffic network, you, you, you've kind of got to know that what the rules are to connect. Um, and you need to get hold of the supply authority to say, look, this is what I want to do. And does it sort of fit in with how how that roadway or that network would be used. So the first one from the first issue from our side is is, is a safety concern. So, and it typically re- applies to what Dirosh mentioned, a tied inverter. So this is a device that can run in parallel with the grid, um, and that equipment must be certified in terms of what we call NRS 097, a piece of legislation. It's not mandatory. 
but Eskom, as well as all the municipalities, require adherence to that particular specification. And what that spec says is that the equipment, the inverter equipment, must be able to detect when the grid has gone dead and stop feeding energy back in. So from our perspective, that is a key safety issue because if an inverter, for example, starts to feed power backwards into the network, we could have an out where one of our electricians could be trying to solve that particular problem, but energy would be coming from the wrong direction, which you wouldn't expect. So we expect that the inverter must have that capability to detect a dead grid and immediately stop um, feeding energy back into the grid. It doesn't have to stop supplying the local uh, place, but it must definitely stop feeding back uh, power back in. And then the second main concern, which is why we have this legislation, is that we, we need to prevent power quality issues from arising. And what I mean by this is that you're connected to a network and your neighbors are connected to that same network. So if you propose a system that's too big, for example, it can introduce over-voltage conditions which, which start to impact your, your neighbors. So as the supply authority, we need the tools to manage that situation. So that's why there's, there needs to be an application process where you come to us and you ask, can I connect this particular equ equipment or this size of equipment at this point of your network? We then use that NRS 097 spec to have a look, does it sort of uh, fit within what they call the, 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 the simplified connection criteria? If it does, then the process will be to say, okay, Technically, your system looks fine. You can now go ahead and, and in fact, install it. Um, in fact, that same spec also says that if your system is bigger than 350 kilowatts, you should do a network study to make sure that, that those effects are not going to happen on the network. And the good news that I can give is that on, on typical metro cable networks, we haven't really seen big issues with power quality and over-voltage. It's, it's a little bit different when you're on a, on, a, on a rural farm line because now you put a generating source at the end of the line. It will, in fact, cause voltage rise issues. But we've seen some fairly big systems, three to five megawatt size systems connected onto our cable network, um, and that hasn't been a problem for us at all. That's good news the indeed. Other... Uh, sorry, Paul. I mean, what are the requirements then when it comes to metering? All right. So, so in terms of the metering, we, we do already have a prosumer tariff, although that, that's an unusual word. It's a feed-in tariff. So if you're connected to the network, you have a surplus. What, what is required is a meter that's able to, to measure that surplus coming back into the grid. Um, at the moment, City Power will pay a commercial customer uh, around 55 cents per kilowatt hour for energy that comes back into the grid. So what you essentially need, and as part of that commissioning process, is to check that you've got what they call a four-quadrant meter, which is a, a fancy way of saying a meter that can simply measure the flow of electricity either coming in or going out. So it's, it's not net metering. It doesn't sort of turn backwards. It's a meter that's got two separate registers, one that measures consum consumption separately to one that measures export. And then your bill is worked out according to those uh, particular meter readings. So that's real good now for Johannesburg uh, businesses or businesses that fall under your ambit. But are these regulations and procedures standard across all municipalities in South Africa? All right. So the good news is that there are 170 odd separate municipalities in South Africa. Um, and at the last count, there were over 50 that had in fact applied to NERSA for feed-in tariffs. 
And that number grows every day. We've had the likes of Salga um, uh, um, and AMEU, for example, doing quite a lot of work to prepare municipalities to, to in fact, do this and get their processes in place. So, so one, one good spin-off is to, of this is that in quite a few cases, the process is more or less the same. I've got to say that it's slightly different for different municipalities. But in general, that application process is more or less the same because most of these municipalities have been guided by um, training that, for example, what, that, that Salga has offered. So I think we're getting there. Um, certainly the bigger, the bigger municipalities have all sort of subscribed to this. And as I say, at last count, there were over 50 that had NERSA-approved feeding tariffs. Thanks, Paul. We also have with us Hendrik Raydani, who's the chief engineer of the Energy Department of Alternative and Renewable Energy at the city of Ukuruleni. Hendrik, uh, welcome uh, with us today. Uh, just to perhaps um, confirm something that we heard a little bit earlier, I asked Paul uh, from the city of Joburg whether City Power or his organization was the biggest supplier of electricity into South Africa. He said, well, Maybe Irikuruleni is bigger. Is that the case? Uh, maybe just to start off, uh, I would say yes. I mean, our 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 demand is almost two thousand five hundred megawatts, uh, and then that's almost uh, I think is the biggest in South Africa. So obviously, this is largely due to the fact that uh, I mean, Irikuruleni is highly industrialized. I mean, you get the biggest industries around here. So, yes, that does make sense to say Ekoruleni might be, yes, might be small in terms of the geography, but in terms of the, the demand, electricity supply, probably we might be bigger than most metros, yes. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it's, uh, it's, it is a part of the engine room of South Africa, so we're not surprised at, at that, but thanks for confirming it. Uh, could you just give us some insight into the regulations and procedures at Ekoruleni and how... Uh, or whether or, or not these are applicable all over the country. Again, um, just so that the those who are using PowerPulse, the companies who are installing solar PVs, have a feeling or a sense of uh, what regulations they have to go through. Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, I'm not sure if maybe Paul might have mentioned it before, uh, there is also an initiative by SALCA, MAU, Sustainable Energy Africa, uh, where they try to bring most municipalities you know, into that working group. And then I think last time I checked, almost 40 municipalities across the country have joined in where they're trying to standardize everything. That uh, I mean, it goes across your all the requirements. Uh, so I would say almost 40 across South Africa, most probably will have more or less the same requirements. But obviously, it depends from one municipality to the other. I mean, for example, I mean, uh, we from the Coraline side, we normally request, especially industrial customers who want to install these embedded generators. Anything above 350, we normally request a grid impact study, at least just to show or simulate how that generator will actually integrate with our grid. So now, uh, obviously, due to capacity, there are some municipalities that can do those studies in-house, you know, but now, obviously, smaller municipalities might have to uh, outsource that function. So, yes, I was saying almost 40, probably more or less the same. But, yeah, there are still some municipalities who, unfortunately, uh, they haven't been part of that working group. So you might find that uh, there might not be any uh, requirements and find that 
customers or wants to connect, but now they end up getting frustrated because no, those there's no standardized application process, uh, evaluation, and and integration process. And and what are the penalties or consequences of not following the regulations and procedures? Uh, obviously, you'll know that as municipalities, we actually operate based on a policy, on a, an approved policy. And then now uh, we do have uh, approved uh, small-scale embedded generation policies, but now that policy is worthless if it's not backed by a bylaw. So now once the bylaw is passed, meaning that now it actually enforces whatever is uh, 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 described or detailed on the policy. So now if it means that now we give a customer's chance to uh, to register and that they don't register, we've got the right to actually disconnect power because obviously most of these systems are grid time, meaning that they need a voltage pulse from our grid to operate. So now if they don't want them to operate or uh, uh, to register their systems, we've got every right to disconnect. I know some municipalities, last time I checked City of Cape Town, they went as far as giving uh, customers a grace period in which to say for the next three months, if you don't come and register, you're going to come and disconnect power. And there are some uh, uh, fines imposed, I think almost 6,000. But as the seat, as certificate, as yet, we are we are not at that point where we want to enforce it. Because now, once you do that, you have capacity in-house to deal with the influx of registration. So as it is now, uh, just to try, there's still enough time for people to register. But what I've picked up is that most industrial customers, they do register, and as opposed to residential customers, because most of the guys that are doing the installations are more professional, they understand the regulations. So now you'll find that I'll say 80% to 90% of applications that we receive is mainly from, uh, from commercial customers and then their installers because now they are more reputable. So they will actually push for, for registration with the council. That's some useful input uh, from Hendrik Radani, uh, the chief engineer uh, of Alternative and Renew- Renewable Energy at the city of Urkuruleni. And of course, Paul Vermeulen ahead of him, who has the same job at the city of Johannesburg. But Dirosh, um, bring it down to practicalities as far as uh, those who use power pulse are concerned. It sounds like there's a lot of steps uh, that businesses have to go through to make sure that they're compliant, they don't want to get those 6,000 rand fines or perhaps even higher uh, elsewhere in the country. So how does PowerPulse help them uh, to navigate all of this? So Alec, uh, PowerPulse, you know, has basically, you know, one of the the key uh, value adds is that it's a guided process for the customer. And the major challenge a client faces when implementing a system is that as the owner of the connection point, they are responsible to ensure compliance with the regulation. And, you know, not being compliant with the regulation can result in the system either being deemed illegal, as you've heard, or being a safety hazard, which is, you know, which is actually the bigger issue here. So to solve for this, uh, through the Power Pulse process, we've ensured that our partners are clear on the regulatory procedures and they guide our clients uh, in this process in the correct manner. As a bank, when when the bank funds these projects, uh, we implement fail-safe conditions in the funding terms to ensure that the system is legally connected. Uh, And that's done to further protect our clients. 
Pulse by Standard Bank is an end-to-end online solution built to match businesses with trusted suppliers and deliver the right technical, legal and funding solutions. For more details, email us at powerpulse at standardbank.co.za.